Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The word of the Lord. Well, Advent, as we've been saying, Advent is the season of the year um, when Christians remember and celebrate the arrival of Jesus Christ. Uh, Advent literally means arrival. And so Advent is that season when we remember not just that Jesus Christ arrived once in the past. Advent is also the season that Christians remember the fact that we are still longing for Jesus Christ to arrive once again and to bring healing and renewal to the world. So in a very meaningful sense, Advent is all about longing, and that's very appropriate because um, it might just be this experience of longing that is perhaps the experience that most defines our experiences as human beings. Every single one of us has longings, desires, yearnings in your life, and every single one of you, a huge part of your daily life, is filled with trying to find some kind of satisfaction for your deepest longings. That means that, that not only is longing a part of your daily life, unfulfilled longing is a normal part of everyday human experience. That means that the big question, one of the big questions facing all of us is, well, what do we do with those deepest longings of our hearts? Is it even possible to find fulfillment? And if so, how does that actually happen? You know, there are uh, a number of approaches to that question that have been present throughout history. One of them is the approach of both Buddhism and ancient Greek philosophy. And that might sound kind of remote, but I'll tell you it's not. If you walk over to Whole Foods right now, you will walk into a very secular space you're not going to find any advocacy for any type of religious worldviews or spiritual worldviews except this one. Because you can buy magazines there that will teach you how to practice what's called mindfulness meditation. Mindfulness meditation is the practice of what both Buddhism and ancient Greek philosophy called detachment. Both of those approaches would say, well, our biggest problem is that we're just too attached to things. 
Quit chasing things like romance and wealth and power and pleasure and possession and status. Nothing on earth really has the power to make us truly happy. The idea that there's something that's out there that can make us truly happy, really that's just nothing more of an illusion. Quit chasing it. If we could just be less attached to things, you wouldn't be so unhappy. You wouldn't suffer so much. So basically, that approach um, to longing says become a Jedi Knight. You do remember, don't you, that Jedi Knights are strict adherents of this approach. They're not allowed to form loves or attachments. Now, one of the obvious problems with that approach is that it is a deadening of all the things that really make us human in the first place, love, passion, desire, yearning. It's a deadening of those things. So a lot of people have said, well, that's one approach. Another approach would be Instead of trying to find happiness in good things, instead, let's try to find happiness in being a good person. Um, Become more altruistic. Devote yourself to a cause. Cultivate virtue. Cultivate character within yourself. Now, that that sounds really good because instead of seeking happiness in being uh, happiness in good things, this says, seek your happiness in being a good person. But if you think about it, that approach has some problems as well. And one of them is this. If one of the main reasons that you're doing good things for people is to find happiness, that's still basically a selfish approach to life. If one of the main reasons you're, you're being a good person and helping people is to find happiness, then it's not really, you're not really doing it for them. You're doing it for you. Another big problem with that is this. We live in what is arguably the most committed culture in the history of humanity to to trying to make the world a better place, right? I mean, of all the societies and cultures in the history of the world, this culture, this society is probably more committed to trying to make the world a better place than any other at any time. And yet, there are lots of studies out there that show us that not only are we not happier, um, Levels of depression and anxiety are actually greater now than they've ever been in the history of the world. And that's not just here in the United States. That's true all over the world. So what do you do with the deepest longings of your heart? Is it even possible to find fulfillment for these things? The passage that we just read actually helps us see the answer. Because the passage we just read is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It's called the Annunciation. It's the story of how the angel Gabriel came to Mary and announced to her that she was going to give birth to Jesus. Um, It's all about the arrival of Jesus Christ and how Mary responds to that. So we're in the middle of a three-week series on this story. And, And as we look at it, we see that Mary, last week we saw that Mary begins with what we call exploratory doubt. She doesn't just blindly accept the gospel. She wrestles with it. She, she uses her mind to think through all the claims and the implications of those claims. But this week, we see that one of the very next things that happens to her is she begins to realize that the gospel is not just information, it's an invitation. That the gospel actually demands a response. It demands our participation because the gospel is a call to participate in something. Now, as we look at this passage, I want to see particularly what does that call mean for us, and especially what does that call of the gospel mean when it comes to our deepest longings, yearnings, and desires? We're going to see three things about the call of the gospel this week. We're going to see that it's gracious, it's radical, and it's redemptive, okay? The call of the gospel is gracious, it's radical, and it's redemptive, all right? First, the call of the gospel is gracious, 
At the very beginning of the angel's message, the word grace shows up three times. Now, our translations don't reflect that because it would make the language a little awkward. But if you were to translate the angel's message literally, here's what he says right at the beginning. Grace to you, O receiver of grace. Don't be afraid, for you have found grace with God. The, the very first words of this angel are literally dripping with grace. Now, what is grace? By definition, grace is a gift you don't deserve. That means that you can't work for it, you can't earn it, you can't merit it. There's nothing you can do to, to get it. Grace is a gift that you don't deserve. But look at who this gift of grace is coming to. Mary is an unwed Jewish teenage girl, and that's all we know about her. In fact, the lack of information about Mary is very significant for us because everybody else in this chapter, um, we're told something about their family. We're told something about their lineage. To use the language of that culture, to use the language of, of the gospel, we're told something about whose house they belong to. So for instance, in Luke chapter 1, you meet three other characters. Zechariah was a priest. That means he's of the house of Levi. Uh, his wife Elizabeth, we're told, was of the house of Aaron. Um, even Joseph, who doesn't even do anything in this passage, he's just mentioned, even him, we're told that he belonged to the house of David. Everybody in the first chapter of Luke has a house except for Mary. Because in that culture, Mary was a nobody. Because in those days, look, your house was your identity. Your house was the way that you knew that you were a somebody. In traditional cultures and societies like that, your identity was determined by your family and by the role that you played in the larger society. So in those cultures, the hero was the person who sacrifices their own individual longings for the sake of the larger group. Now, in our modern Western culture, it's the exact opposite of that. Your identity is determined not by your family, not by your role in society. Your identity is determined by you, wonderful little you. You create your identity for yourself. So in our culture, the hero is the person who actually rejects all of the roles that society would foist upon you and instead is what we would call an authentic, self-defined, self-determined, self-actualized person. That's the hero in our culture. Now, here's why this is so important for us. In that culture, Mary would have been a nobody. She was Jewish, which would have made her a racial outsider. She was... Um, unmarried, which would have made her a social outsider. She was poor, which would have made her an economic outsider. And perhaps most importantly, she was female, which would have made her a gender outsider, especially in that patriarchal culture. In every conceivable way, Mary was at the bottom of the social ladder, and yet the grace of God comes to her. Do you realize what that means? It means that the gospel, the grace of the gospel absolutely demolishes every form of social superiority. That means that if you're somebody by the world's standards, that you can never look down on those who are the nobodies because grace demolishes social superiority. It means that you can never look down on somebody who's of a so-called lower social status than you because grace demolishes every last stronghold of social superiority. It erases social distinctions in the world. But not only that, not only does the gospel um, destroy social superiority, it also demolishes our moral superiority. Because think about this with me. When you look at all the characters in the Bible, this is kind of fun. Um, you think about the most famous characters in the Bible, almost every single one of them has some moral um, failure in their life. 
They've all got some skeletons in their closet. So Abraham lied about his wife twice. Um, uh, Jacob, his grandson, was a liar, cheat, and a thief. He was a scoundrel. Uh, you go through the judges. Uh, Gideon was a coward. Samson was a sex addict. Um, even David, the great King David, um, he was an adulterer and a murderer. Every single one of the most famous characters in the Bible, at least the men, it seems like they all have these moral failures in their life. But then you look at the women, and the women so, many, so much of the time are, have better character, more integrity than the male characters in the Bible, which is really interesting because the Bible was written in a phenomenally patriarchal culture. We just mentioned that. And yet it's far more positive about women. So you think about the most famous women in the Bible, like Rahab or Deborah or Ruth or um, uh, Esther, and you, like the very high character that these women have, none more so than Mary. Of all the characters in the Bible, maybe nobody has more character, more integrity, more goodness than Mary. And yet, do you see where we're going with this? Mary needs grace. Mary needs grace. What does that say about the rest of us? I mean, look, it's one thing to say that grace comes to social, uh, that grace erases social superiority. We like to think that, you know, the underdogs can win. So we like it to see that grace comes to social outsiders. And we do also like to see that grace comes to moral outsiders because it helps us to feel better about ourselves when we see that there's these really wicked, evil people out there and they really need the grace. But it is quite another thing altogether to see that grace comes to even the very best of us and that even the very best people in the world need grace. Mary, just a few verses after this, we're going to look at this passage next week. Mary calls God her Savior. She knows, she recognizes that she has no moral superiority over anyone else. She knows that there's no moral higher ground that she can stand on. In fact, she recognizes that the idea that, well, there are just certain things I would never do, she knows that that idea itself is the very root of pride and moral superiority that is at the very heart of sin in the world. Listen, if Mary, the very best one of all, if Mary needs grace, what does that say about you and me? You know, I, um, do you remember the Penn State sex scandal? It's about six years ago, almost exactly. Um, Jerry Sandusky molested 52 children. Joe Paterno, famous football coach, covered it up. It was a huge scandal. It's really interesting, actually. I was thinking about this the other day, to look back on that in light, especially of all the recent revelations in our own culture about sexual harassment and abuse in our culture. Um, David Brooks actually wrote an op-ed piece about that scandal in the New York Times when it came out. It's really interesting what he called it. He said, let's all feel superior. It's the title of the piece. Um, listen to what he says in his essay. He said, first came the atrocity, then came the vanity. The atrocity is what Jerry Sandusky has been accused of doing. The vanity is the outraged reaction of a zillion commentators whose indignation is based on the assumption that if they had been in Joe Paterno's shoes, they would have behaved better. In the past, people built moral systems that emphasized our sinfulness. They reminded people of the evil within themselves, but now we live in a society oriented around our inner wonderfulness. Everyone gets to proudly ask, how could they have let this happen? 
The proper question is, how can we ourselves overcome our natural tendency to evade and self-deceive? But it's a question this society has a hard time asking because the most seductive evasion is the one that leads us to deny the underside of our own nature. Friends, the gospel is a gospel of grace because the gospel erases erases every form of social superiority, but it also erases every form of moral superiority. Nobody gets to ask, how could they have let this happen? We all have to take a part and own our own part in the brokenness and, yes, the evil of the world. That's because the gospel says that things like your identity, your status, your significance in this world, your moral standing before God, that those things come to you not because of anything you are or do, but by grace. And so when it comes to the deepest longings of our heart, this is significant for us because if you're loved and accepted by God on the basis not of anything you are or do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for you, that means, first of all, that we really don't have a basis for asking God for anything in our life. Secondly, it means that there's nothing God can't ask of us. And that leads to our second point. We've just seen that the call of the gospel is gracious, but we also see here the call of the gospel is radical. The angel comes with a message from God. And basically, he says, Mary, I'm doing something in the world. I am bringing healing and redemption and renewal and salvation to the entire world, and I want to use you to be a part of it. And how does Mary respond? Some of the most famous words in the Bible, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Basically, she says to God, Okay, you want to use my life? Help yourself. You can do whatever you want with me. Friends, the call of the gospel is radical because it means we surrender control over our lives. It means that we surrender all of the conditions over our lives. Now, what does that mean for us, practically speaking? Remember just a bit ago, we were talking about what it meant to have a house in those days. So your house was the way you got an identity. Um, Your house was the way you knew that your life had worth, meaning, and value. Your house was the way that you got love and affirmation in this world. Your house was also the way that you got financial and economic security. Your your house was, was the fulfillment of all the deepest longings of your life. So when we think about it, those are all the same longings we have in our lives too. The call of the gospel is radical because it says, give up your claim on those things. And notice I did not say give up those things. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The gospel does not say give up those things. The gospel says give up your claim on those things. In other words, give up your right to seek them on your own terms and in your own way. Give up your conditions for what you will or won't do in order to protect those things. Give up your control over those things in your life. So look at Mary, all right? In her culture, The way a woman got identity and status in that culture was by building a house with her husband. She became married. She had children. Mary's longings would have been wrapped up in her hope that she was going to build a house with Joseph, that she was to become attached to Joseph's house. But when she says yes to God, she throws all of that away. Now, maybe in our culture, we would look at Mary and say, good for you, Mary. The idea that a woman should be defined by her relationship to a man or defined by her ability to have children, how patriarchal, how oppressive. Mary, you're better off without all of that stuff. That's what our culture would say. But our culture would also say, Mary, you should find your identity in all the things that made you an outsider in that culture. 
So we, we would say to Mary, Mary, you, you should embrace your, um, your racial identity as a racial outsider. Mary, you should embrace your identity as a gender outsider. Mary, you should embrace your identity as the member of an economically and politically oppressed minority. Don't find your identity in things like being a mother or a wife. Find your identity in your gender and your racial outsiderness. That's what we would say. But notice, Mary doesn't do that either. She rejects both the traditional way of getting an identity and the modern way of getting an identity. She isn't finding her identity in being a wife or a mother. Neither is she finding her identity in being self-actualized or an authentic, self-defined person. She takes her hands off of her life and she says, you know, God, I like to think that I know how my life is supposed to go, but I don't. God, I like to think that, that I'm in the driver's seat of my life, but I'm not. God, I like to think that I know what's best for me, but I don't. God, here's my life. You take control of my life. You take control of my identity, my destiny, and all the deepest desires of my life. You take control. And that's hard. That's scary. You know, inevitably, when people start exploring faith in Jesus, or even if you've been a Christian for a long time, a lot of times, you know, when we consider what it means to follow Jesus, one of the first and ongoing questions that we ask is, okay, what's this going to cost me? What am I going to have to give up? What am I going to have to stop doing? What am I going to have to start doing? What is this going to cost me? Now, those are understandable questions. Those are natural questions. In fact, Jesus himself said that we should count the cost of what it's going to mean to follow him. But as one of my favorite preachers said, counting the cost does not mean negotiating the price. <laughs> and a lot of times that's what we're doing, isn't it? Counting the cost does not mean negotiating the price. Um, when we ask those questions, a lot of time that's what we're doing. We're doing the cost-benefit analysis. We're, and when we do that, we're not really surrendering our conditions. We're clarifying them, aren't we? In fact, we're clarifying what our real God is. Because if you say, God, unless I have this or that in my life, whatever this or that might be, whether it's romance or a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend, or whether it's career or money or a certain title or a certain job, or whether it's the approval of your peers, the approval of your parents, or a certain status, or a house or a car, whatever it might be, this or that, unless I have this or that in my life, then God, yes, I'll love you, yes, I'll follow you, but unless I have this or that in my life, I won't really be happy. Friends, if we say that, understand something. If the lack of any earthly good can prevent your ultimate happiness, that earthly good is your ultimate happiness. It's your real God. And the real tragedy is that whatever that thing is, it'll never make you truly happy. It will only demand more and more of you and give you less and less in return. Not only is that tragic, it's also what the Bible calls sin. There are numbers of ways of defining sin, but one of them is this. Sin is simply looking for anything other than God that will make you ultimately happy. And the call of the gospel is gracious. It says that, that it's a gift that no one can deserve. And that means that it's also radical because it means that when God calls you into relationship with himself, he calls you to surrender your conditions, to surrender your life to him, and to give him your whole life, including your deepest longings. And that leads to our last point. We've seen that the gospel is gracious. We've seen that the call of the gospel is also radical. But lastly, we see the call of the gospel is redemptive. What do I mean by that? Here's the big question when we think about all this stuff. 
We say, well, if I surrender my conditions, if I surrender control over my life, then what happens to my longings? Does this mean that God just wants me to be unhappy all my life? Is he maybe calling me to be miserable all my life? Is that what God really wants for me to do, to just sacrifice everything and walk through life in drudgery and hardship and toil and affliction, all for the sake of this great cause? Does God not even care about the deepest longings of my heart? That is a huge question. In fact, that is an honorable question, and it's a question that actually gets addressed in this passage, because what is the answer of the angel to Mary? Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God, even your happiness, even the fulfillment of your deepest longings. How does that happen? It happens by seeing that that God is not calling any of us to abandon your deepest longings, but to find their deepest fulfillment in Him. That there is nothing God will ever call you to do or to lose that He is not prepared to give back to you infinitely more by purchasing it back for you. What do I mean by that? Let's take a look. When Mary says yes to God, it's like she's giving up her chance for happiness, right? In her culture, the only way to find identity and fulfillment and security and things like that was in marriage and children for her. It was in building a house. So it looks like Mary's giving up her house, right? Well, in one sense, yes. Um, You know, we're not told everything that was going on in her mind, but it's not hard to imagine that Mary would have had a question at the forefront of her mind as she's having this conversation with the angel, that Mary would have been thinking, well, what about my house? If I say yes to God, if I say yes to this angel, what happens to my house? What happens to my longings? Same question we ask. She would have been asking that question, but notice right in the middle of her question, in the middle of all her fear and her concern and her apprehension about all of this, she heard the angel say to her, Mary, you're going to have a son, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now, Mary, when she heard that, she would have realized because she would have known the story. It's less familiar to us, but would have been very familiar to any Jewish person. The angel is directly referring to very famous conversation that happened in the Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God came to David, the great King David, the great King of Israel. They had a little conversation because when David became king, he wanted to build a temple for God. They called it a house, the house of God. David, uh, the greatest longing of David's heart was to build a house for God. Now, in those days, this was actually a very common practice. Um, When you became a king in um, that world, in that society, one of the first things any king would do is they would build a temple to the God that they worshipped. Because the idea was that if they built a, a house, a temple, or a monument to the God, that then the God would come and bless them and establish their kingdom forever. So, for instance, um, one of the pharaohs in Egypt was named Thutmose III, very famous. Um, he, uh, when he became king, he built a temple to the god Amun-Ra. And we have inscriptions, and it says that the priests of the god Amun-Ra came on behalf of the god and said, Thutmose III, since you have built my dwelling place and you have outstripped all other kings in building my monuments, now I will establish your throne unto distant days." Does that ring any bells? David said to God, I want to build a house for God. But God said, no. Why? Because this God is completely unlike every other God. David was beginning to think like all the other kings and like all the other gods. He was beginning to think, okay, if I do something great for God, 
then God's going to do something great for me. If I build a house for God, then God is going to bless me and establish me forever. And God said, no, that's not the way I work. Because in this little conversation that they had, David said, God, I want to build you a house. And God said, no, David, you don't build me a house. I will make you a house. What? What is God saying? Every other God says, do something great for me. Build me a house and then I will bless you. This God doesn't work that way because this is a God of grace. He says, you don't build me a house, I make you a house. When God promised that to David, in essence, God was saying to David, David, you want to build me a house? That's great. But if I let you build a house for me, maybe it'll be a great house, but it'll eventually crumble. Give your desires to me. Give your longings to me. You want greatness? That's good. I created you for greatness. But David, if you try to find your greatness in yourself, you will find instead only ruin and despair. But if you find your greatness in me, I will make you great beyond your wildest dreams. David, don't build me a house. I'm going to make you a house because I am the true house that you've been longing for your entire life. Now, friends, Mary would have known this story And therefore, Mary would have known this promise. Mary would have known that when God was calling her to become the mother of this child, to become the mother of this king, to become the mother of the ultimate son of David, she would have known, therefore, that God was not calling her to abandon her deepest longings, but to find their deepest fulfillment in him, that God wasn't calling her to abandon her house, that God was going to make her a house. Don't you see? Mary was looking for identity. She was looking for love and affirmation. She was looking for status and security and fulfillment and all the same things that we look for. She was looking for those things. God was not telling her that those are bad things. In fact, God was saying those are good things. In fact, they're so good that I want to provide those things for you myself. Stop trying to build your own house. Let me build your house. Let me be your house. Mary would have known that God would do this for her, but she wouldn't have known how. In fact, all Mary would have had is a promise, the promise of the angel, with God nothing shall be impossible. I want you to know that we have something actually greater than Mary had. All Mary had was the promise. We actually have the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus Christ. How is that? Because Jesus had the ultimate house. He had the palace of heaven. Jesus had the ultimate identity. He sat on the throne of heaven. He was the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of the universe. Jesus had the ultimate greatness. He sat on the throne of heaven from all eternity. Jesus had the ultimate riches of heaven. He had the ultimate love of God the Father. Everything you and I desire and long for most deeply, Jesus had it infinitely and eternally. And yet Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, he left all of that. He abandoned all of those desires and longings in order that he could purchase them for us because Jesus left his father's house in order to be born in a manger. And Jesus left his father's throne in order to be spit on. Jesus left everything we desire most deeply in order that he could give us everything we desire most deeply and by purchasing it for us by his blood because on the cross, Jesus left everything we desire in order to make us his deepest desire. 
And when you see Jesus doing that for you, there's the identity that you're looking for. There's the love you're looking for. There's the security and the wealth and the power and the riches and the glory and the honor and the meaning and the significance. Everything your heart is desiring most deeply, there it is in Jesus accomplishing it and purchasing it for you on the cross with his blood. Friends, don't ask, what is this going to cost me to get to God? That's a religious question. That's a cost-benefit analysis question, but it's not the question the gospel invites you to ask. The question of the gospel is not, what is it going to cost me to get to God? The question of the gospel is, what did it cost God to get to me? There is nothing God will ever ask you to do that he's not already done infinitely more for you. And there is nothing God will ever ask you to give up. (coughs) Excuse me. Nothing he will ever ask you to give up that he has not already given up infinitely more in order to purchase it for you through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Friends, I, you know, I understand how scary this is. When I was 16 years old, I, was, I had a lot of friends that were going to church. I was going to church with them. And, and I remember weighing the claims of the gospel in my own life. And I actually, I went to a, a camp with my friends from church. Um, and I remember the last night of the camp, this Christian camp, sitting there in this darkened auditorium, and you're by yourself, and you're 16 years old, and you don't know what's going on in life, and you're trying to figure it all out. And I remember the speaker at the end of the camp saying, if you're following Jesus, then you should be able to go anywhere and do anything for Jesus. And all I could think of is, I'm going to Africa. I don't know why it's always Africa, but that's what I was thinking. You know, God's going to... I was wrestling with that same question. What about my deepest longings? What about my life? What is this all going to mean for me? And I said, no, I can't do it. No, I won't do it. And I left for 16 years. I didn't become a Christian until I was 30 years old. I had to walk through a lot of mess and muckiness in life to come back to actually giving my life to the Lord. I wish somebody at that point had come to my little 16-year-old self and said to me, Eric, you may not be able to give everything right now, but give God what you can. Just don't leave. Don't try and go build your own house somewhere else because you'll only end in ruin and despair. I did. Don't leave. Just give God what you can right now. Hang in there. Trust in Him and give Him what you can right now. Say yes, as much of a yes as you can give right now. Say yes to Him. Say yes to the gospel. Say yes to His purposes in this world. And in doing so, say yes, not to the abandonment of your deepest longings, but to the fulfillment of those deepest longings in Jesus. By the way, if you do that, I want to let you know, get ready for an adventure. Following this call is an adventure, and I'm not going to tell you that it's not hard and, or it's not dangerous, because it is, sometimes desperately so. But it is an adventure, <laughs> and you will never be the same again if you follow this call on your life. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's wonderful little children's books, every time the children are about to engage in some new mission or every time they're about to walk out into some new dangerous battle, there's always this terrifying realization that this might cost me my life. They know it full well. That, that following this call into battle, into the mission, might cost them their life. But every time they go forward, because they know that, that they're following the king, the true king, King Jesus, in the books they call him Aslan, 
And so they know that because they're following this king into whatever he's calling them to do, every time they're about to do it, they always say, it's like a refrain that pops up throughout the books, well then, let us go forward and we shall take the adventure that shall fall to us. Let us take the adventure that shall fall to us. We don't know what it's going to be. We may end up dead, but let us take the adventure that shall fall to us. Are you ready for that adventure? Are you ready to say yes? Are you ready to say yes, not to the abandonment of your deepest longings, but to the fulfillment of them in Jesus? It is an adventure. And that's because the call of the gospel is gracious. And yes, it's radical, but oh, my friends, it is redemptive. Do you know that call? Embrace it today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your call. A call that, yes, is radical, but Lord, we praise you that it's also so, so dripping with grace and, Lord, so redemptive that there's nothing you would ever call us to do or lose that you have not infinitely done and gave for us. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to say yes to you, maybe for the first time or maybe for the hundredth time or maybe for the thousandth time. Lord, help us to say yes to you and to keep saying yes and to following you in your great adventure in this world, knowing that in following you, it is not an abandonment of our desire, but the true fulfillment of it. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.